these nine and ten. Hey, let's pray. Lord, we need wisdom. As you wrote this, we just pray that you would help us to understand it, but not just understand it, apply it, to really put this into practice in every interaction we have with people to represent Jesus in all we do and all that we say. In your name, amen. Now, you've heard me mention this a lot for the last few Wednesdays, but I'm just going to repeat it real quick. Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon, and he's writing this from what we'd probably consider a backslidden condition. He knows the truth. This man is not an agnostic. He is not an atheist. He knows the truth. He believes that God exists, but he's not walking it. He's not living it. So as you go through some of these verses, especially tonight, you see it from a very skewed perspective. He's writing this book from a very dark time, a dark time of being away from the Lord from where he should be. And I always try to tell you guys, imagine your dark spiritual times and you're wondering and you're questioning and you're like, Lord, I know you're real, but what's going on? Imagine those thoughts being recorded. This is the book of Ecclesiastes. I believe this is one of the most honest books in the Bible. And as we read through it, it is a lot of dark stuff, but at the same time, it stops and reminds us of truth and light. I always think of the verse in Romans 15, where it meant the God of hope fill you with all hope. So as we see this book and we know co-workers, friends, and family members struggling in this world, we know the hope to give them from Romans 15. Please also look for a couple phrases that are repeated extensively. One of them is the word vanity, which is also translated useless or meaningless. What Solomon is saying is this world so often seems useless, meaningless, because why? You really don't have that strong connection with the Lord. Without the Lord, what is the point of this world? And another phrase you'll see a lot is under the sun. When he says under the sun, he's talking about what goes on in this world. Not a heavenly perspective, not an eternal perspective, but just under the sun, focusing solely on this world. Remember what Paul wrote in the New Testament. We're supposed to set our mind on things above, on heavenly things. So with that being said, remind ourselves here of the last two verses of verses 16 and 17 of chapter 8, which takes us right into chapter 9. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. So here's Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, and he's saying, I I, I can't figure out life. I can't. Reminds me of the verse in Romans chapter 11 that we've quoted a lot, verse 33. How unsearchable are the ways of the Lord. You can't figure it out. He's God. We're not. He is so vast, so mighty, so amazing. We're trying to take a tiny little glimpse of something and figure it out. We can't do that. So it's back to this concept. Since we can't figure it out from Solomon's perspective, how do we handle life? Verse 1, chapter 9. For I consider all this in my heart so I could declare it all. That the righteous and the wise, their works are in the hand of God. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. Everything is God's hands. I can't figure it out. I can't can't tell if I'm blessed or not blessed. I can't tell if I'm loved or not loved. I I can't figure anything out. The only thing I can figure out is this, verse 2, that we're all going to die. All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath and he who fears an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. This is one thing he knows. We're all going to die, and we're all evil. Now, there's some truth to that. 
If you've ever read Romans chapter 3, Paul makes a very eloquent case through the Spirit. There is no one who does good, no, not one. There's no one who seeks after the Lord. And then he builds up into Romans 5a, but God demonstrates his love for this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's an amazing picture of love, grace, and mercy. But the only thing that Solomon is focusing on right now is we're all going to die and we're all evil. Remember, this is from that dark perspective. Verse 4, but for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. You don't see that on many Christian shirts. But a living dog is better than a dead lion. Please note by him picking dog. Dog is considered one of the most unclean animals in the Bible. The dogs were just considered scavengers. They hated the dogs. Now, when we think of dogs, we think of man's best friend. From a Jewish perspective, they would not think that way in any way whatsoever. The lion is the mighty. The dog is the dirty. But better to be a live dog than a dead lion. Now, I'm going to forewarn you. Verses 5 and 6 have been twisted, taken out of context, and quoted by many, many different false ministries, false religions, false groups. And they like what it teaches, and they twist it. And rather than looking at the whole scripture, verse 5. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for their memory of them is forgotten. And their love, their hatred, their envy have now perished. Never more will they have a share in anything done under the sun. This has been twisted by so many false cults and religions to say, verse 5, when you die, you know nothing. They may be some groups called soul sleep. Some groups look at it as, see, you don't even have to worry about hell. When you look at some false cults, false religions, they take out the teaching of hell completely. Hell doesn't even exist. It was just a, a, a symbolic thing of God's hatred of sin. And so therefore, if you reject Jesus when you die, you just kind of cease to exist. Some believe this, that yeah, there is a hell, but there's something that they call second chance salvation. So therefore, when you die, you get to say, hey, here's hell. Do you really want this? We're giving you one more opportunity. And what they do is they kind of quote some of these verses here. But remember the context of the book of Ecclesiastes. Man's opinion from a backslidden state, not thinking about the things of the Lord, thinking about the flesh. And how many times as human beings have we thought about this? What even happens when we die? I mean, do I even really go on? Do I cease to exist? I mean, is there really a heaven? Is there really a hell? Well, let's talk about this. Can you go with me real quick, please? To the book of Luke. Luke 16. Let's look at the whole context of God's word as you're going to Luke 16. Because what Solomon just wrote, there is no memory. They know nothing that goes on. They just kind of stop. Well, Luke 16, we have an account of someone who dies. And let's see what happens to them. Luke 16, verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at his gate. This is not the Lazarus that died and Jesus brought back Mary and Martha's brother. Desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. There you see that Jewish mindset again. This man was at the low of the low, fed with crumbs, the dogs licking him. Verse 22, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That's an Old Testament way to refer to waiting for heaven. The rich man also died and was buried. And being tormented in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. 
Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted and you are in torments. And besides all this, between us there is such a great gulf fixed that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them. Thus they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. That man is not in soul sleep. That man is not having any memory or consciousness of what's going on. Ecclesiastes says the dead know nothing. This man knows a lot. Hell is real. It is real. What happens when we die is very simple and straightforward. If you are born again in Jesus Christ, you have immediate access into heaven. Thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, absent from the body, present from the Lord. That's what happens. If you're a non-believer and you die, you go to this place called Hades. Okay? Hades literally means the boat of the dead. It is not a place that you want to be. As we just read, it's a place of torment. And you are there waiting in Hades until something called the Great White Throne Judgment, which is in Revelation chapter 20. The Great White Throne Judgment is this. Non-believers will stand before the Lord and they will give an account of their life. Basically, summarizes this. God stands up there and says, okay, why should I let you into heaven apart from the blood of Jesus Christ? And the Bible says in Matthew 20 that the books are open and their works are read and they will be found guilty. And in Matthew chapter 20, the Bible says that then Hades is now thrown into hell, which we consider hell. There are two different Greek words, Hades and Gehenna. So Hades is thrown into Gehenna, which is the everlasting fire, the lake of fire, the lake of torment. And there is consciousness there of what's going on. There's torment. Now, before people get upset about this and say, how can a God of love allow this? Let's just say a couple quick points on this. First off, people that reject Jesus Christ are choosing hell. That's, that's just the fact of it. The Lord has made it abundantly clear that there is a heaven, there's a hell, and the only way to get there is through Jesus. This is the point of the gospel, the good news. This is why we share this. So it's a choice that they're making. Number two, the Bible makes it clear that this was created for a punishment for Satan and the fallen angels. God's intention was for us to still be in the Garden of Eden. We messed that up. And so since we messed that up, a righteous God cannot allow sin into heaven. So the righteous God sent his righteous son to die for us to give us righteousness. And remember, righteousness, this means to be made right. I'm not perfect, I'm sinful, but through Jesus Christ, I am made righteous. The Bible says that Christ became righteousness for us, and now I have access into heaven. So, is there consciousness after death? Yeah, there is. And we're going to live on forever, either in hell or in heaven. And so when you read those verses in the book of Ecclesiastes, and if you ever run into some false cult, false religion, and they're quoting that verse, say, yeah, but let's look at all the other passages in the Bible as well, too. Let's look at the whole counsel of God's word and try to explain to them when you nitpick verses out of the Bible, especially from Ecclesiastes, you've got to be careful about that. That's why it's so important to know our Bible, to back up what we believe, and to be able to understand that. So those verses do say that, but when you look at the whole context, you see what's happening. Solomon is talking from that perspective rather than seeing the big picture that we have the blessing of knowing this and the New Testament as well. Any quick questions, comments about anything with Hades, hell, heaven, death, etc.? Make sure we're all on the same page with this before we move on. Cindy. When people go from Hades to hell, mm-hmm. are they alive? Are they still in hell? Are they still alive? Or are they 
They're alive in the sense of that their, their spirit is alive. It says in Revelation chapter 20 this, verse 13. Uh, actually, I'll start in verse 12. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up to the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So when you're asking the question, are they alive in the sense of flesh, heart, beating, lungs, etc., no, they've already died but you have to remember there's a part of us there's a spirit and a soul that is eternal that lives on forever yeah they are yeah That's it's a place of conscious torment yeah, yeah okay. mm-hmm. alive is such an interesting word because you have to die to live right, right. yeah yes yep yep yes Yes. That is correct. If you look in Corinthians, I believe it's First Corinthians 15. It goes into detail about the bodies that we get as believers in the Lord. Uh, non-believers would not get that. Once again, there still is a state of conscious torment of what's going on. It's First Corinthians 15. Um, the whole chapter is good. But if you want to go detailed, verses 35 through 49, kind of sums it up like this. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there's one kind of flesh of men and another flesh of animals, another flesh, another birds. There are celestial bodies and there's terrestrial bodies. So there's heavenly bodies and there's earthly bodies. The glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. Then he goes into detail there. But it's 1 Corinthians 15 that goes into detail about our, our new bodies. So, so no, there's not going to be the end of them. They're still going to be tormented. It's an eternal thing. We're going to have a heavenly body. The Bible calls it a glorified body. There's a really interesting verse in Revelation where it's talking about the false prophet and the Antichrist. And it talks about how they are thrown into this pit. And then a thousand years later, it still uses the present tense that they are still there. And this is that there is this conscious torment that's going to be going on for all of eternity. And once again, and, and people stop and look at this and they struggle with this. And they say, okay, so I, I make bad choices on this world for 70 years and I have to pay for it for all of eternity. That really doesn't seem fair. I think we forget this. We're an eternal being. So therefore, the choices we're making for 70 years affect all of eternity. We, we, we like to stop and think that these 70 years are, are just everything. Eternity is everything. So as an eternal being, I am going to live on forever in life in heaven or in death in hell. But I'm going to be conscious of that. And so as an eternal being, the choices I make now affect my eternity. So therefore, that's why it happens that way. Anybody else have anything here before I go on? Yes, yes. Let's never forget that. First John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This is the beauty of salvation, grace, and mercy. This is why the gospel is the good news. Is we go proclaim this, that, that we are on a path to hell, but yet through Jesus Christ and his love, his grace, and mercy, we can have salvation. And, and that's the good news. And that's what we, that's what we want to proclaim. Megan. 
Believers will stand on one type of judgment, but it is not the great white throne judgment. The judgment that believers go through is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And it's called the judgment seat of Christ. It's something completely different. Um, the way I look at the judgment seat of Christ is this, and forgive me if this analogy you don't like too much. It's more of a job review. You're already in. You know you're saved. You have entrance into heaven. You accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But now what they do in 1 Corinthians 3 is they look at your works down here on earth. These are not works that earn you salvation. These are works that you did for Jesus that determine your rewards in heaven. So this is not a judgment on salvation. Let's make that abundantly clear. But you will be judged on your actions down here on earth on how you used the gifts that God gave you to further the gospel. And then that will determine your rewards up in heaven. Now, usually at this point, I have somebody come up to me and say, I don't care about rewards in heaven. I'm just glad I made it in. Amen. You're saved by the skin of your teeth. I get it. Amen. But if you read in Revelation, anytime they have rewards, what are they always doing? They're taking them off and laying them at the feet of Jesus. So when you get up to heaven, it seems like whatever rewards you get, it's not that you walk around for all of eternity saying, look at me. You take those rewards and say, no, Lord, it's all you. And you give it to Christ and you lay it down at his feet. So yeah. Amen, you're in. Amen, you're saved. That's the goal. But once we're born again and saved, there's something I hope that changes in our heart to drive us to focus on eternity and not on this world. And I'm just telling you right now, the biggest problem I see facing the church today is that we have people that are saved, but they're not focused on eternity. They're focused on now. And I understand that there are things that pop up. There's health issues, there's work issues, there's life issues. I get that. But we're supposed to have an eternal mindset in all that we do and realize every action I have impacts eternity. That's all that matters is impacting eternity for the Lord. Anybody else have anything? Okay. So with that being said, let's continue on now to see what happens here. Since he comes to this conclusion, his conclusion, that nobody knows anything when they die, we just all kind of die, what's the point? He goes this then, verse 7. Go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white and your head lack no oil. Live joyfully with the wife of whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun all the days of vanity. For that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. So basically he sums it up like this. Hey, we're all going to die. And nothing happens after we die. So guess what? Verse 7, go eat, drink, and be merry. Verse 8, put on good clothes. Make yourself look good. Verse 9, enjoy your wife. It's a meaningless life. I heard this verse quoted one time at a wedding. And I wondered, did the pastor know what he was really quoting? Because before it is, we're all going to die, what's the point? And after it's, we're all going to die, what's the point? So, hey, have a good marriage. You know, he's saying in verse 9, this is all you got. Remember the phrase there, under the sun. He's focused on this earth, vanity. So go enjoy your meaningless life under the sun. Verse 10, hey, work really hard because verse 10, once you die, you can't do anything. These are not the most encouraging verses, but if your mindset is, once I die, I cease to exist and there's nothing, what hope do you have to drive you to anything else? I mean, really, what a meaningless life it is if the true life is just this. I'm going to die one day and I don't know when it's going to be. And once I die, I just stop and cease to exist. 
So I'm going to spend whatever time of consciousness I have working and, and, and trying to scratch out a living and trying to... That's depressing. That's why we have hope in Jesus Christ. That's why we have something that's bigger than this world, bigger than right here and right now. So now he comes to this conclusion. It's just all luck anyway, verse 11. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill. But time and chance happen to them all. For man also does not know his time, like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare. So the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So he comes to this conclusion. I'm just going to die and I don't know when. There's nothing I can do about it. He's just getting himself into a bigger hole here. So let's talk about verses 11 and 12. You're right. You don't know when you're going to die. The Bible says that God holds your very breath in your hand. Think about that. I remember teaching my boys one time about this, this brain that God has given us and this idea of breathing. And I remember one of them, and I hate to say it wasn't that long ago, and he was too old to be asking these questions. He said, but that's not true. I make sure I breathe at night when I'm sleeping. And I thought, who? I, I mean, my wife homeschools, and I thought, maybe I need to rethink the whole thing here because there's, there's something going on here. I said, buddy, you, you, don't, you don't think to breathe at night. He goes, yeah, I do. I said, no, you don't. And I said, are you thinking about breathing right now while we're talking? And you get to see his face kind of drop. We have no control over this. We don't. Now, now the, the medical field has, has blessed us with some amazing things. But ultimately speaking, the Bible says the Lord holds your very breath in his hand. So I look at verse 11 and 12. There is some truth to this. You, you hear the reports. You hear the stories of people taken just like that. No forewarning. It happens. But I also have to look at the whole counsel of God's word. And in Romans 8, 28, God says that he works for the good in all things. I read in Jeremiah 29, 11, that I know the plans that he has for me, and they're good. I think of what it says in Psalms, that the Lord is good and does good. I do a lot of funerals. And there's a lot of times where people are taken very quickly without forewarning. Now, if they're a born-again believer in Christ, the Bible says in Psalms that we rejoice. Precious in the eyes of God is the death of one of his saints. Their race is over, their time is over, and they got to go home. Amen to that. It still hurts. But when I look at verses 11 and 12, it doesn't fill me with despair or depression. It reveals that, Lord, you hold my life. There's nothing I can do about that. So I'm just going to serve you and love you with the time and energy I have. I don't know when my time's going to be. I don't know when I'm going to go. But when I go, I know I'm in your hands. And that gives a peace that surpasses all understanding. And there's a lot of truth to that. And I hope you guys could have that same peace of mind. That you're just in the Lord's hands. And we trust that. Verse 13. So he changes up here a little bit now. And he says, okay, this is what he's done so far in chapter 9. We're all evil. We're all going to die. So we might as well just enjoy the earth. And I don't know when I'm going to die, and it's not really fair. Okay, let's move past that now, he says. And now let's get back to this idea of wisdom, because he's the smartest man that ever lived. So now he's trying to think this through, verse 13. This wisdom I've seen under the sun. Remember, he's now, once again, under the sun from an earthly perspective. And it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it. And a great king came against it, besieged it, and built great snares around it. Now there was founded it a poor wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered the same poor man. Here's the new theme. Life isn't fair. The people that should get glory and attention 
don't. The people that should be punished, don't. This is the theme that he's had. This life thing isn't fair. People that love the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength seem like they are punished and they go through difficult times. People that don't even care about God seem to have this blessed life. Now, we talked about this last week, this idea of what Peter said. Remember what Peter said. God is patient towards us, not willing that any should perish, that it should all come to salvation. So the Lord's patience, even with these evil people, is really his love, grace, and mercy. So he comes to this conclusion. The wise man's not remembered. Verse 16, then I said, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. Words of the wise, spoken quietly, should be heard, rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Wisdom. This is a theme that we've been hitting a lot here on Wednesdays and even on Sundays. I'll just give you the references again. Proverbs 4, verses 5 through 7, where Solomon writes in Proverbs, Get wisdom. Above all things, get wisdom. What is the definition of wisdom? Knowing God's way on how to handle a situation. Not your wisdom. Not your guidance. Not my wisdom. Not my guidance. God's wisdom. Look at verse 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. There's wisdom in knowing what to say, how to say it, when to say it. That's wisdom. And part of the reason why we come together, we study the Bible, we pray together, we seek the Lord together, is because you are all faced with situations and sometimes you don't know what to do. So let's get back to the wisdom of the scriptures and let that guide and direct us. If the Bible says it's right, it's right. If the Bible says it's wrong, it's wrong. There's wisdom in that. If the Bible says this is the path, walk in it, then let's walk in it. If the Bible says that path is going to take you down to destruction, stay away from it. But look at the end of verse 18. One sinner destroys much good. Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment, and it causes it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. I can't remember exactly how the quote goes, so I'm going to butcher it. Forgive me for that. But it's something to the effect of it takes years to build a good reputation, but you can destroy it in seconds. Boy, there's a lot of truth to that. Think about this. As he's reading this, or writing this, I should say, one sinner destroys much good, debt flies, putrefy the perfumer's ointment, causes it to give off a foul order, so does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. Do you think that Solomon was ever thinking about his dad at that moment? Think about that. Solomon's mom is Bathsheba, who David had the affair with and killed Uriah to cover it up. Solomon knows his lineage. He knows his story there. And think about this. If you take David's life up to David and Bathsheba, David is quite the man of God. From the moment of sin with Bathsheba for the rest of David's life, it is just turmoil after turmoil after turmoil. All because why? One choice. I mean, think about that. You, you have this witness, you have this testimony at home, at work, at life, with co-workers, and there's just one moment where you lose it. You say things you shouldn't, you hit something you shouldn't, you scream you shouldn't. Guess what people are going to remember? That's what they're going to remember. Does this mean that we have to be perfect? We can't be perfect. Jesus is perfect. Part of our witness and testimonies in times of sin to go back to our kids, our spouses, our co-workers and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. That's part of our witness and testimony. But there's a lot of truth to this. You all know people, I know people, well-respected men and women of the Lord, maybe very famous men and women of the Lord, that made one choice, got caught, 
And that's in the back of your mind now for the rest of your life. God's grace and forgiveness is amazing, but there's a lot of truth to this. One action can destroy a whole lot of good. So for now, for the rest of chapter 10, he's going to talk about the idea of wisdom versus foolishness. But before we get to that theme, anybody got any quick questions, comments about anything here before we move on? Well, then why are you doing that, Cindy? Cindy just said, I'm going to probably start something I shouldn't. Good golly, we're only eight minutes away from being done. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody could disagree with what's been going on in our country for many years is, is lack of... I mean, am I on the right track here? You want me to make a political agreement or comment on what you're just saying? I have learned many things in my years. That are, no, I, no I, I will say this. No, 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 I will say this. Let's just say this. If we truly do believe that the Bible is God's perfect plan for life, and we really do believe all these verses that the Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation, all this type of stuff, you can look back at every nation in the world, every nation in the world for the past recorded history. We're not doing good as a people of trying to stop and say we want to be one nation under God. We're not. So there is not a lot of wisdom and decisions being made. With that being said... This is why Peter says it, Proverbs says it, all these references in the Bible says that as believers that we're supposed to be praying for our political leaders. And it also says, too, that as Christians, we're supposed to watch what we say about our political leaders as well, too. And, and we really could do a lot, a better job of praying, seeking the Lord, getting out there, being lights and witnesses, etc. So to answer your question, I don't think anybody could disagree. No, any nation in the world is not using the wisdom of the Lord to lead and guide it in decisions. Right. What we're starting to see now, generational effects of this. Uh, you got to remember what Paul wrote in the Timothys about the end times. Men will become lovers of themselves. Their heart will grow wax cold. We're starting to see this type of idea. We're starting to see now generations coming up that really don't care anything about the Lord in any way whatsoever. And as we've said out here many times before, we, we are so blessed. We are able to meet freely and openly right here, right now, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's never take that for granted. And amen. And we're thankful. We're thankful for the men and women that serve in the military. We're thankful for all these rights and privileges we have. And let's never take that for granted. And I probably haven't mentioned it. I don't think I mentioned it tonight for announcements. You know, that's part of the reason why we collect the boxes for the different men and women serving in the military to send them a love package to say, we thank you for what you do. And we also want to be a light and a witness to you in all that we say and do. And we're very appreciative of that. At the same time, at the same moment, as individuals, we know where the end is coming. We know where this is going. We've read Revelation. Hopefully this spurs us on to say, hey, the ship is sinking. Let's get as many people as we can in the lifeboats. And that lifeboat is Jesus Christ. Because I know what happens. I've read Timothy. I've read Revelation. I've read Daniel. I know where the world's going. And and so since I know this, I want to get out there and proclaim the gospel as best as I can. That's the wisdom I think the Lord has given us, is think about eternity and not the here and now. That wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be, Cindy. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But let's just stop. Let's just stop. You did good. You did good. I'll give you a star. (laughs) I don't know what that gets you, but uh, we have a lot of extra Pop-Tarts in the kitchen. (laughs) I do know that. (laughs) Just kidding you, J.D. Anybody else have anything here? All right, then I think 
we're not going to get through chapter 10. Um, so we will stop right there because it's a nice little theme to stop, the idea of wisdom versus foolishness, and we'll get into that next week. So it looks like we're not going to finish up Ecclesiastes next week, which is good. I love this, being able to take the time and just really talk and see what the Lord has in store for this. Hey, let's all stand here for prayer if you guys don't mind. Heavenly Fathers, we do come to you now. We just pray that word wisdom. I I just think of what you said in Proverbs. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Above all things, get them. Lord, we want that. We want that. Help us to live it out in all that we say and do. To think about eternity. To represent you in all that we say and do. Lord, we do stop right now. Do thank you for the freedom and privileges we do have. Thank you for the men and women that do serve. And Lord, help us to take this opportunity now. I really represent you in all we do and say in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week. God bless. If you got anything you want to pray about, feel free to pop on up here. And uh, we'll see you guys next week.